Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. The Blood Drips An Unsolved Mystery by Dick Donovan For a long time, for years in fact, at short intervals, the following advertisement appeared in most, if not all, the London papers, and many of the provincial ones. To let, on long lease at low rental, or freehold to be sold cheap, a magnificent family residence, complete with every convenience, suitable for a large family. The house stands in its own grounds, comprising nearly three and a half acres, part of which is natural wood, while the remainder is laid out as flower and kitchen gardens. There is stabling for four or five horses, with commodious carriage-house, harness-room, hay and corn-lofts, and spacious apartments for coachmen, grooms, etc. The property, which is only twenty-five miles from London, enjoys an unequalled situation, both as regards salubrity and views. The country is open all round, with extensive woods in the neighbourhood. The climate is bracing— gravel soil lying on chalk, an adequate supply of water, and drainage perfect. Apply in the first instance to Smeaton, Weardale and Smeaton, estate and house agents, valuers and auctioneers, etc. 105 New Bond Street, London, West. On the first blush this advertisement was very attractive, and its bona fides was beyond question— seeing that such a well-known and old-established firm as Smeaton, Weardale and Smeaton, was responsible for it. But a second reading would naturally have caused any thinking person to ask himself why, if this property was all that was represented, it should be offered at a very low rental, or cheaply, if bought. Now, it was very certain that there was something wrong. Otherwise, a magnificent family residence and Three and a half acres of ground need not wait long for a customer. But, as already stated, this advertisement continued to appear at short intervals for years, so that those who were familiar with it knew quite well that out of the hundreds of thousands of people who must have read it, no one had yet been induced to invest. Now, what was the object in continuing the advertisement? upon which a large sum of money must have been spent, if a customer was not forthcoming. The only answer to this was that the owner or owners of the property hoped that by continuing it long enough, the advertisement would at last attract the right person. And in the end, this hope was realised. One morning, an August morning it was, brilliant with sunlight— when even grimy London looked bright and cheerful, a gentleman entered the office of Smeaton, Weardale, and Smeaton. There was something about him that suggested long residence abroad, his dress and appearance generally. He wore a soft grey felt hat, a large flowing necktie and loose collar, and a grey check suit of clothes, which, though faultless as to their cut, had never been made in England— or at any rate not in London. For your London tailor has a style which, to the practised eye, is unmistakable. The gentleman was evidently an invalid or a convalescent. 
He was thin, languid, and delicate-looking. There were dark rims under his eyes, and though his face was tanned with sun, it was greyish in its hue, and suggestive of an undermined constitution. Smeaton, Weardale, and Smeaton's offices were extensive and luxuriously fitted, as became a first-class firm of estate agents in so fashionable a neighbourhood as New Bond Street. The gentleman was received by a page-boy, and shown into a waiting-room, which was furnished with velvet lounges and chairs, and plentifully supplied with newspapers. "'I wish to see one of the principals,' said the gentleman, handing the page-boy his card, on which was engraved, Walter Reginald Minton, M.E., British Columbia. The boy bowed, took the card, and retired. In a few minutes, an obsequious clerk entered, and with many bows requested Mr. Walter Reginald Minton to kindly step this way, sir. Mr. Minton followed the clerk, who showed him into a large, handsomely furnished room, the walls of which were covered with photographs of houses of all kinds, and coloured plans of estates. At her massive mahogany desk sat a well-preserved gentleman, long past the prime of life, but with silver hair, a bright, keen eye, and a rubicund face that suggested a fondness for good living and old crusted put. "'Do I address Mr. Smeaton?' asked the stranger. "'Yes, sir. I am the head of the firm. Pray take a chair.' And Mr. Smeaton put his white, fat hands together with professional dignity, and waited for his visitor to state his business. "'I've noticed an advertisement in the Times,' began Mr. Minton, taking from his pocket-book a half-sheet of note-paper, on which the advertisement alluded to had been neatly gummed. It has reference to the sale of a family residence, and I should like to have some further particulars about it.' Mr. Smeaton's eyes brightened up with joyful expectancy, as, glancing at the sheet of note-paper, he recognised the advertisement which had become fossilised, so to speak, in the London dailies. "'Oh, yes,' he answered pleasantly, and with a most becoming smile. "'The advertisement accurately describes the property. Where is it situated?' "'An hour's run from London. There will be no difficulty in my seeing it?' "'Oh, none whatever.' I may mention that I am a mining engineer, and have been for many years in British Columbia. But, having made a moderate fortune, and being in very bad health, I am anxious to settle down in my native country." "'Ah, just so,' remarked Mr. Smeaton blandly, and stroking his smoothly shaven chin. "'Are you a family man, Mr. Minton, may I ask?' "'Yes. I have a wife and one daughter, twenty years of age.' Mr. Smeaton's countenance seemed to fall just ever so little, as he replied, "'Hm! I am afraid, then, if your family is so small, you may find the house larger than you require.' "'Oh, no,' answered Minton quickly, and Mr. Smeaton's countenance recovered again. "'We like a large house, for we keep a good deal of company. Then I don't think you can do better than purchase Dumthorpe Hall,' said Mr. Smeaton, with a gracious smile. Is that the name of the place? 
Yes. Of course, if you become the owner, you will be at liberty to adopt any other name you like. Now, I suggest, before entering into any further particulars, that we go down and see the property. You couldn't have a better day. The country will be charming under this brilliant sun. If you will allow me, I shall have much pleasure in accompanying you. That will suit me admirably. I am staying at the Tavistock Hotel. We can call there in a cab and pick up my wife and daughter. Mr. Smeaton struck his bell, and the page-boy appeared with such alacrity, that one might have thought that the bell set some spring in motion which shot the boy into the room. Peter, look up the next train. Yes, sir. Two minutes later, the boy came back. There is a train at twelve-fifty, sir. Good. Mr. Smeaton looked at his massive gold watch, although a handsome clock stood on the mantelpiece. The force of habit, no doubt. We have an hour and a half, ample time, and as I have a little business to do, perhaps you will permit me to meet you at the station. Oh, certainly. A few minutes later, Mr. Minton was on his way to his hotel, and, punctual to the time, he and his wife, a charming but delicate and nervous-looking lady, and his daughter, a no less charming girl, were at the station where Mr. Smeaton had already arrived, and procured first-class tickets. On alighting, after an hour's run through a pleasant country, a broom and pair of horses, which Mr. Smeaton had ordered by telegraph from the landlord of the hotel near the station, were waiting, and the party at once drove to Dumthorpe Hall, a distance of over six miles from the station. "'I should mention,' remarked Mr. Smeaton, just before reaching the place, that the property has, unfortunately, been allowed to fall into a somewhat dilapidated condition, for the owner, who is in India, has sadly neglected it. However, that will be duly taken into consideration in fixing the purchase money. As regards the situation, the advertisement had scarcely done it justice. The country, diversified with wood, hill, and dale, was charming and looked at its very best on this brilliant summer's day. The entrance to the grounds of Damthorpe Hall was through a gateway, the gates being wrought-iron, and of a handsome design, but now rusty and out of the perpendicular, owing to the sinking of one of the foundations of one of the pillars on which they were hung. Some difficulty, therefore, was experienced in getting in. There was a small lodge at the entrance, but it was overrun with ragged creepers, and the windows were covered with the accumulated dirt of years. As the visitor stood for a few moments, looking about them, after the difficulty of opening the gate had been overcome, Miss Minton suddenly uttered a startled cry, and clung in alarm to her father's arm. "'What is it? What is it, my dear?' he asked quickly. "'Oh, look there!' she exclaimed, pointing with her parasol to the ground a few feet away, and he did look, and beheld an adder leisurely moving across the pathway. Mr. Smeaton saw it too, and, springing forward, he struck the reptile with his stick, killing it at once, and he tossed it among the trees out of sight. "'If I were superstitious,' remarked Mr. Minton, "'I should take that as an evil omen.' I am glad you are not superstitious, 
replied Mr. Smeaton with a laugh. For the fact is, this place has the reputation of being haunted. He uttered this quickly, jerked it out, as it were, as though he was glad to get it off his mind, the incident of the snake having given him the opportunity of making the remark. "'Haunted!' exclaimed the two ladies in a breath, while something like a scared appearance came into their faces. "'Of course that won't affect you, ladies,' said Mr. Smeaton, with his bland smile. "'You're above being affected by such silly nonsense, I am sure.' They walked on. The broom followed slowly. The drive was all overgrown with moss and grass, and strewn with decaying leaves and pieces of branches of trees that had been whirled off by gales. Presently the drive took a turn, then expanded, and the house came in view. It was an old Elizabethan mansion, with pointed gables and a red-tiled roof that gave it a very quaint appearance but it looked forlorn and mouldering to decay, even with the sun pouring down a flood of golden light upon it. Had it been seen under less favourable atmospheric conditions, it would certainly have worn a repellent aspect. Ivy and honeysuckle had struggled to the very eaves, and hung in straggling and ragged festoons about the windows. The interior of the hall was worse than the exterior. Cobwebs hung from the ceilings in long ropes. The paper had peeled from the walls. The fire-grates were red with rust, the windows obscured with dirt, the floors black, and in some places rotten, while pervading the whole house was a dank, earthy, mouldering smell, like that which comes from a newly-opened tomb. The lady shuddered, and were evidently repelled by the cheerlessness and gloom of the house. But Mr. Smeaton chatted pleasantly and glibly. He had a smooth tongue and great fluency, and knew how to say pretty things in dulcet tones. He was very anxious to get the property off his hands, and, as Mr. Minton seemed a likely customer, he was not going to let him slip if talking would secure him. The premises were thoroughly examined. They certainly were commodious and not ill-planned, but paint, paper, and whitewash everywhere wanted renewing. The same neglect characterized the grounds. They were howling wildernesses of ill weeds, and the conservatories were falling to pieces. The ladies certainly were not impressed, although they expressed admiration for the position and view and there could be no doubt that the situation was healthy, for it stood high. Gravel and chalk were the geological features for miles round, and the air was singularly pure, while the water was liquid crystal. "'Well,' said Mr. Minton, reflecting when the survey was over, "'I can see certain potentialities in that place.' "'Potentialities! <laughs> I should think so, my dear sir.' exclaimed the agent joyfully. With the expenditure of a little money it can be made into a palace. Without answering this remark, Mr. Minton, turning to his wife and daughter, said, What is your opinion, darlings? Well, answered his wife cautiously, we have seen it 
under every possible disadvantage, as far as neglect and dirt go, and I think it would want a lot of money-spending to put it in order. But what is the story about its being haunted? asked the young lady, addressing Mr. Smeaton, and unable to suppress a little shudder. Mr. Smeaton laughed loudly, almost boisterously, as he made reply. "'My dear young lady, such stories as these are always so ridiculous that they cannot be discussed by sensible people.' <laughs> he dismissed the subject with his bland smile and a lofty wave of his white hand. As they returned to town, Mr. Minton for the first time asked the price— and the figure named by Mr. Smeaton was so low that the other opened his eyes in astonishment. "'Is there anything the matter with the place?' Mr. Minton asked, with great point. "'Nothing. I pledge you my honour, answered the agent, equally emphatic. "'Beyond its uh, reputation as a haunted house. But it is right to say that that reputation has kept the place untenanted for twenty years.' with one short break. It was let on a yearly tenancy to a family who only remained, however, six months. "'Why did they leave?' asked the two ladies in concert. "'Well, they said that they heard noises, and that what looked like uh, blood dripped from the ceilings.' "'Oh!' exclaimed the mother and daughter with a little start, and nestling closer to each other, as if for mutual protection." Mr. Minton smiled sceptically, and this smile did not escape the agent, who said quickly, "'I have told you frankly the cause of our not being able to let or sell the place. That is the sole reason. And it certainly does not say much for our boasted enlightenment that so splendid a property should go begging through such a senseless cause.' "'You are right. You are right,' exclaimed Mr. Minton, and the other felt from this that the customer was secured. The following day, Mr. Minton, not wholly with his wife's and daughter's approbation, instructed his lawyers to make further inquiries, and examine the title-deeds. The inquiries elicited nothing beyond what the agent had stated, namely that people said it was haunted, while as for the title-deeds, they were beyond dispute or quibble. The price asked was very low, but Mr. Minton's lawyers offered a still lower price, and as the agent's instructions were to sell at any price rather than let the place fall into absolute ruin, the bargain was closed, and Mr. Minton became the absolute possessor of Dumthorpe Hall. He immediately set a little army of workmen to work—gardeners, painters, paper-hangers, plumbers, etc., as he was anxious to move in before the winter. Very soon the place had been transformed, and the prejudice of the ladies gave way. As they saw the change, they expressed themselves delighted. As soon as the workmen were out, the upholsterers entered, and as they had carte blanche to furnish the house thoroughly and well, they had soon diffused comfort, warmth, and beauty— where erstwhile all was decay and mildew. It was the last week of October when the family moved in. The autumn tents were on the land, but beyond that there was no trace of the approaching winter. 
The days were still warm and bright and sunny, for it had been an exceptionally fine season. A number of servants were already installed. The greenhouses and conservatories were filled with flowers. The gardens were already bright and gay, while in the stables were horses and carriages. In fact, the place was complete with everything that could give comfort or enjoyment to the family. Mr. Minton was a liberal provider, and being wealthy, having made his pile out of mines in British Columbia, he spared no expense. For the first few weeks all went merry as a marriage bell. The ladies expressed themselves charmed with the place. The dark days of November were drawing to a close, and the house was full of visitors, when one morning the cook approached Mrs. Minton, and said, "'Can I speak to you, Mum, for a few minutes?' "'Certainly, Cook.' "'What is it?' "'Well, Mum,' she began sheepishly, "'I've been awfully annoyed for several nights by somebody walking about over my head.' "'Oh, nonsense, Cook! That couldn't be. The room over you is a lumber-room, and it's just filled up with boxes.' "'Yes, Mum, I know that. And that's what makes the noise all the queerer.' And then yesterday morning, something came down from the ceiling in the kitchen like blood. Mrs. Minton turned a little pale and shuddered, for she remembered that the agent had mentioned the story about blood dripping from the ceiling. "'What an extraordinary thing!' she said, with a forced laugh. "'But the next time you're troubled with these phenomena, Cook, pray come and call me.' The Cook— did not seem quite satisfied as she went away. And that night, about ten o'clock, she went to her mistress again, with a scared white face, and said, "'It's there again, Mum. Will you please come to my room?' Mrs. Minton went, and to her surprise she heard a steady, measured tramp, 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 overhead. She sent for her husband. He came— and he heard the same sounds. He went into the room above, but there was nothing to account for those footsteps. In fact, so full was the room of boxes, trunks, etc., that there was not a clear floor-space of two yards. Mrs. Minton did not go into the upper room. She waited for her husband coming down, and suddenly, as she was looking up towards the ceiling, something wet fell on her face. She uttered a little startled cry, and, taking out her handkerchief, wiped the wet off. And what was her astonishment, to find that the handkerchief was stained with blood, or what seemed like blood? Such a shock did this cause her, that she almost fainted, and when her husband returned, she was pale and trembling. He expressed himself mystified, and it was evident that he was very much impressed. It was agreed that nothing should be said about this to anyone in the house, and the cook was enjoined to keep the matter secret for the present. But the following morning after breakfast, the gentleman retired to the smoking-room for a few whiffs, when a young fellow named Dobell called out as he filled his pipe, "'I say, Minton, old fellow, who is lodging over me?' "'I don't think anyone is over you.' "'In fact, I am sure there is not. Why?' "'Well, I, I don't know. 
but it seemed to me that some fellow with heavy boots did nothing but tramp about all night. Mr. Minton started. He could not help it, and he who had indignantly disavowed any belief in the supernatural was becoming superstitious. He laughed the matter off, however, and told his friend that he must have been suffering from nightmare. For the next two or three days, nothing else occurred, or at any rate was mentioned, until Miss Minton went into her mother's room in a state of great fright, and exclaimed, "'Oh, Mama, I've had such a shock! As I was dressing, something fell from the ceiling onto my face and neck, and when I wiped it off it was like blood!' Mrs. Minton grew deadly pale as she heard this, but, recovering herself quickly, she answered, "'Well, darling, I have experienced the same thing, but it is better to say nothing about it. As long as it is not more serious, we must put up with it. When the guests have gone, we will have the house examined. Possibly some trick is being played. Although she thus dismissed the subject for the time being, she could not get rid of the mystery so easily. And that strange drip from the ceilings was impartial, for it dripped on all alike, and in all parts of the house. Other ladies and gentlemen complained of it, and the ladies became alarmed, while a thorough investigation organized by the gentlemen was entirely barren of result. They could discover nothing, absolutely nothing, and the ceilings, which had all been newly whitened, were stainless. These people felt they were in the presence of some mystery which they could not solve. But what was it? Of course, the gentlemen scoffed, and even some of the stronger-minded ladies pooh-poohed. But there were others who held their peace, and, as soon as they could courteously do so, they took their departure. Mr. Minton was greatly concerned. If this sort of thing was to continue, he would hardly get guests to stay with him, while, as for his wife and daughter, it was evident they were suffering in their nerves. Then, a fresh trouble arose. Some of the servants gave notice to leave, saying they were afraid to stay in such a place. The cook, who was an exceedingly good servant, and liked her place, was loath to go. But she said that she would certainly have to leave, if the annoyances did not stop. It need scarcely be said, that the matter preyed upon Mr. Minton's mind. He had spent a large sum of money upon the house, and to be the victim of such an unsolvable annoyance was a great hardship. As Christmas approached, things seemed to get worse. Those drips from the ceilings were constantly falling, and the tramping, which was confined to two rooms, still went on. It became very obvious to Mr. Minton that his wife and daughter were suffering in health, though they tried not to show it, and he became greatly concerned. A new set of guests came down for Christmas, and care was taken not to put anyone into the room below that where the tramping was heard. But people complained, nevertheless, of red moisture dripping on them from the ceilings, and nervous people became frightened. Mr. Minton was not a man to be easily subdued. As a mining engineer, he had faced dangers in all shapes and forms, and had overcome difficulties— 
that would have daunted less determined and less strong-minded men. But now this constant interruption to his domestic comfort and peace was telling sorely upon his already shattered health. He had come here for quietude and rest, but in spite of his care and lavish expenditure, it seemed as if his hopes were doomed to be blighted. As he was not quite able to divest himself of the idea that he was the victim of some stupid trickery, he, with the aid of a builder from the neighbouring town, examined the house from roof to basement, and all the time that he was pursuing his investigation, that mysterious dripping of a fluid-like blood continued from the ceilings, and the tramping in the lumber-room never ceased at night-time. The examination, therefore, resulted in nothing, and the mystery was a mystery still. At last, driven to desperation, Mr. Minton resolved to try another expedient. That was to clear out the lumber-room, have a bed put up there, and sleep in the room himself. This he did, against the earnest, prayerful entreaties of his wife and daughter, and even of the servants. But he was resolute, saying he had never feared living man, and nothing dead could harm him. The arrangements completed, he wished his wife and daughter a fond good-night, and when they exacted a promise from him that he would violently ring his bell, if he required assistance, he laughed heartily, and retired to what had now come to be called in the house, the haunted room. His wife and daughter were restless and uneasy, but as the hours sped, and there was no sound of the bell, they dropped off to sleep. In the morning, about nine o'clock, Mr. Minton's valet went up to the room, with hot water. He knocked at the door. There was no response. He knocked again, still no answer. So he tried the handle. It yielded, and he entered. Then from his hand fell the hot water jug he was carrying, and he staggered back with a wild cry of alarm. For lying on the bed, his limbs all contorted, the sheets twisted about his body like ropes, as if he had rolled and writhed in some torturing agony, his eyes starting from his head in horror, his mouth wide open, his hands clenched, the nails digging into the palms, was Mr. Minton, stone dead. Medical men were hastily summoned, but their services were of no avail. They could only certify that Mr. Minton, being in very delicate health, had received a shock of some sort, which had caused death. A shock of some sort. That was only too painfully evident. It did not need a medical man to state that. What they could not state was how the shock had been produced— Poor Mrs. Minton and her daughter were carried prostrated from the fatal house to a neighbour's, and they only entered it once again to take a last look at the remains of the husband and father. When he had been borne to his final resting-place, his widow instructed her lawyers to sell off all the furniture immediately. That done, the accursed house was shut up, and it remained shut for over a dozen years. No one could be found to take it and at last, only a few years ago, the estate was sold, the house razed to the ground, 
and some small villas erected on the land, and Dumthorpe Hall became only a memory. Many people will no doubt remember what a fierce controversy raged at the time of Mr. Minton's tragic death, and how nearly every paper in the kingdom, big and little, advanced some theory to try and account for the phenomena which had alarmed servants and guests alike. Some of the papers discussed the affair banteringly, some with glib platitudes about the pitiable superstition which still lingered in some of the remote country districts, others again half-seriously, and others still with appalling learnedness. Divines and laymen alike entered into the conflict of opinions, but in the end nothing was proved, nothing was solved, and the extraordinary mystery remains a mystery still. Hello ladies and gents, Ian here. Be sure to pop on over to our YouTube channel or Facebook page for regular updates. If you'd like to support our work, please consider taking a look at our Patreon or Bandcamp pages, or search for us on Audible. You'll find links to everything on our website, horrorbabble.com forward slash links.